Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. This is Brian Barnett. You're listening to The Last Symptom. I'm so glad you could be here. Thanks for coming back this week. Boy, have I had a busy week. Busiest week I've had in a long time. And the reason for that is because I'm moving, kind of making some structural changes to The Last Symptom. Uh, For all these years that I've been doing this now, I've had a, a really healthy Facebook group. But I'm moving away from Facebook, and everybody getting in an uproar about that. They think it's got something to do with politics, but it don't. It's got something to do with Facebook's business policies. I just, for the long-term success of the last symptom, don't feel that it's a, just a very wise place to continue investing in. So I've moved to a couple of new platforms called MeWe. I'm sure you've heard of it. So that's where my official education, uh, last symptom education group is now over at MeWe. You just search for The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett. I'd love to have you there. And then my premier community, which is on the locals.com platform. And you can get there by going to thelastsymptom.locals.com or... You can download the Locals.com app and then just search for and join the Last Symptom community. So, uh, this move has been, you know, it's been a lot of work. I have to make sure that everybody knows about this move and has those who are interested have the opportunity to move over to Facebook. You know, over the years, I have had many people tell me that they would love to be part of a, a Last Symptom community, but they just weren't willing to create a Facebook account, or they didn't want to use a an account that was associated with their personal life, you know, that they were connected to with all their, their friends and that sort of thing. And uh, so now, now it's available in two different places. And I love both of these platforms. I love MeWe. I didn't at first. I thought it was clunky, uh, you know, unfamiliar, didn't feel as good as using Facebook. But, you know, the longer I've used it, the more I realized that that was just unfamiliarity. It was just unfamiliarity. Now I like MeWe much better than I like than I ever liked Facebook. And that's, that's I'm telling you the truth I'm on that. So there is a, a breaking-in period. As far as uh, the last symptom community on the Locals.com platform, that's my favorite. I really love Locals.com. I mean, the the thing is just ingeniously de- designed. It's clean. It's solid. It just it it's just a really nice experience, uh, particularly for me, as you know, a, a content creator, 
and somebody who has to uh, enjoy the platform that he's on I'll, I'll tell you the locals.com platform is just it and um, so I've been using it to put some uh, more personal content there uh, but also the thing that's probably most exciting for you my audience is something that I call daily orange slices and these are condensed video insights that typically last about five minutes long a couple of them have gone to 10 15 minutes but I try to keep them to about five minutes long it's just that I'm a windy person you know I'm a talker so sometimes I get carried away and then in the editing you know I don't want to kill my babies so uh, there's stuff that I just I hate to cut out because I feel like it offers an insight or the possibility to give a person an insight and so I, I hate to leave out that that wording or that repetition within the the video but the daily orange slices are these condensed video insights and conversations and recommendations that I am posting exclusively on the locals.com platform so in addition to this weekly you know the idea behind it was that until now you've only had this podcast once a week to look forward to and to kind of feed your mind on while you're working out working on your recovery or you know I should probably get away from only talking about uh, those working on recovery specifically because I have a lot of folks who come to me because they were concerned about somebody else and then what happens is that they end up looking inward and trying to address the own their own issues and so you know um, I would classify that probably as self-improvement so I probably need to start including those two things together recovery and self-improvement but so up until now you've only had the last symptom weekly podcast for that and I mean you had the group over at terrible Facebook but as far as something that you could look forward to and content that you could consume you know the podcast has been it so I'm really excited about these daily orange slices and I'm up to 15 now I don't do them on the weekend I I do them Monday through Friday but very brief to the point uh, but packed full of insights that um, can only help you so if you're interested in those I encourage you to join me over there at thelastsymptom.locals.com or you can download the locals.com app to your phone and then just join the last symptom it'll pop right up so how's your week going I hope everybody's doing well a lot of winter stuff happening here which I just love you know for years now I've been complaining that the winters have not really felt like winter not a lot of snow temperatures haven't really dropped too low and uh, well this year I got my wish a lot of winter and um, and I've been enjoying it you know we have a saying that there's no such thing as as bad weather there's only being inappropriately dressed and as a year-round wilderness backpacker I can tell you that that is true if you're if you're appropriately dressed you'll do just fine oh you know one thing I was going to say and I'm not working off a script this week I'm just kind of going off the cuff here but another thing I was going to say about all these structural changes that I'm making and everything is that 
it's kind of upset the balance of my typical schedule. So I'm still in this process of trying to find the best schedule to work on so that I can get everything accomplished when I want to get it when I want it to be accomplished. For example, right now, this episode of the Last Symptom podcast that you're listening to, it's actually uh, Friday today that I'm recording this. And I'm not too happy with that. And it's been a while since I've been getting the podcast out at a really predictable time on Thursday. These changes I've been making with The Last Symptom have only complicated that. You know, I think it's nice for folks uh, to, to have The Last Symptom podcast to look forward to on Thursday. And specifically for when they get off work and they're on their drive home or whatever. When they're on their commute. So it, it is my intention to address this issue of me consistently getting the podcast broadcast uh, later than folks used were used to. So I would like to start getting it broadcast again on Thursdays faithfully and have it out before, let's say, 2 or 3 o'clock so that folks in the evening during commutes can look forward to it. Now, how will I go about doing that? The, the reason I ask is because it's relevant to the attitudes that we're working with in relation to self-improvement, recovery, authentic recovery, I should say, and these sorts of things. In what way? Well, I identify something in my life that does not seem to be going smooth as smoothly as it could be. Something that I'm just not satisfied with, right? What's the next step in that process? The next step in the process is for me to evaluate the situation, look at all the different parts, and try to find out what real practical solution do I have to address that issue and make it better. So, as I said, I'm in that process right now, uh, looking around at my week, my pacing of things, when I'm sitting down to do certain things, how I might be able to make adjustments to that to get a better result. I've always had the attitude that if I look at it hard enough, I will find a solution. I've always, I've just, that's always been the attitude that I've worked with. And that probably assisted me greatly in my recovery from borderline personality disorder. Because once I realized what it was, you know, I had access to the same information you all did. Everybody saying that it's just something that you're going to have to live with. You should be satisfied learning uh, coping mechanisms and sort of these superficial approaches to things. I was just talking to somebody last night about DBT, about how DBT teaches you to superficially live life. It tells you to imitate the things healthy people do. And it teaches you ways to, to imitate the things healthy people do. But the problem here is that healthy people aren't superficially doing these things. I mean, like, for example, the reason why healthy people don't go into fits of rages over things that seem not to make sense is because fundamentally they're not viewing the situation the same way that an unhealthy person would. So you see, DBT simply says, don't go into a rage. Here's things you can do to superficially prevent yourself from going into a rage. Here's what you can do to pretend like you're not feeling those things. 
or to get your attention, like getting your attention off of those things. But healthy people aren't walking around going through these superficial tricks. Their healthy behaviors and reactions to things are a natural result of the attitudes and perspectives that they live with. So that's really the the solution, right? And DBT then doesn't give you the solution. It just gives you a bunch of superficial tricks. So then in my own recovery, when I started looking at DBT, I started, you know, I recognized what the issue was and everything that I was seeing was saying, just be content with all these superficial approaches and everything. I said, no, that's, that's not good enough for me. <laughs> if I look at this hard enough, I will find the solutions and I won't be happy until I find the solutions. It reminds me of, um, oh, years back I was moving into a house and I had called my buddy Jeff Jeffrey was sometimes calling we also call him Murph but we called uh, I'd called Jeffrey up to come and help me move some furniture and so he come to this house and this was back in Columbus Ohio this is when I was married to my first wife who you rarely hear me talk about so we were moving into this place and he was helping me move furniture and we had to get this box spring you know like for a bed this big I think it was a queen size box spring up these stairs to the bedroom it wouldn't go we tried everything it wouldn't go and I said well let's put this aside I'll, we'll get this later and he said I don't think that's going to go up there I said it'll go we'll, we'll get it up there he said, uh, that thing, you're not going to get that up there. And he's thinking about taking out the wall and all, what, all these things we're going to have to do. The problem was we couldn't get it around a corner. It just wouldn't go around a corner. It wouldn't fit. And I said, I, I know we'll get it up there. I just Let's do some other things first. You know, Let's move some of this other furniture first, get that into place. And we'll save that for last. But I, I'm, I'm confident that there is a solution. We will get it up there. He said, well, I don't, I don't think so. I said, okay, well, come on. Uh, let me worry about that. So, sure enough, when it come time, you know, as we continued working and carrying the furniture in and getting it all set up and everything, my mind was working on that problem. So I'm talking to him, I'm moving furniture, but, but my mind, at the same time, is trying to work out a solution to that problem. I'm examining it from all angles. I'm you know my imagination is playing with different possibilities and finally I had the solution and I said I got it and I went and I took a hammer and I uh, I popped out uh, the screws I think they were I think they were nails holding the thing together but basically what I did was I, I undid the frame of this box spring so that then it just collapsed on itself and then we just took it up around the corner and then we just bzzz, 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 put in some screws and the thing was back together the way that it had always been. So the solution was not that complicated. It was just a matter of sitting and ruminating and doing some analysis and looking for the solution. So as I say, I've always kind of walked around with that attitude that it if I don't see the solution, it's because I'm not thinking about about it hard enough. Um, and so that's the process I'm in right now with my schedule. 
with the last symptom schedule. I'm looking at everything, and I'm just trying to find the smoothest solution. In your recovery, or in your self-improvement work, you know, be sure to, to share that attitude with me. Where there's a will, there's a way. The solution's there. If I just sit and think about it long enough, it'll click. It'll click into place, and you'll go, ah, aha. Of course, a lot of you have been following me for a while. You've already got your solutions. You know what the solutions are. So then what is it a matter of? It's a matter of continuing to ruminate. Continuing to uh, take the information that you now have, these insights that you now have, and to reevaluate everything you've known about life up until now with these new insights. Let me give you an example about that. When I realized that I had been living with the idea that feelings can be good or bad, right or wrong, I, I never knew that about myself. So when I gained that insight, I it was like, I've told you before, it was like a waterfall come down over top of me, a waterfall of realization. And I knew that I would be chewing over that for years. And so the information in itself was valuable. It gave me an instant insight. But then there were years where I, I was just walking around now thinking back to different parts of my life, different decisions I had made, different behaviors, and these sorts of things, and saying, well, if I had known this about feelings back then, how would that have been different? So it was kind of like I was replaying my life, but like in an alternative reality where I had always been healthy, and how that would have affected my life so differently. But then I also had to apply that to other people in my life. How are they walking around also with this false notion about the nature of feelings? How has it affected them, and how is it continuing to affect them, you see? Years of just ruminating until, you know, there's just, it's that type of work that changes things you fundamentally have believed to something you now fundamentally believe in a different way. It, it's not enough to just say, oh, here, this is the difference between guilt and shame. These are the two distorted core beliefs that you're living with. This is your perspective about feelings. You get that initial insight, but it's not enough to change your fundamental underlying perspectives of the world. In order for that to happen, you got to kind of have time to not only, and you know, I talked to you about going back into the past and making all these re-evaluations uh, re about how, how I would have handled things differently, how I would have interpreted things differently, how I would have made entirely different decisions. Now I understand why I felt the way I did in that situation 20 years ago. I didn't understand it then. But I understand it now with this new insight. Um, so you've got the past that you got to do these ruminations with, but also you've got the present. You're still living life, right? Every day you're going to work. Every day you're interacting with people. Every day you're, you're living. And you get to have these new insights, these new understandings of the world, of feelings, of self, come up against real life. 
and have it affect you know these these insights affect your reactions your decisions your behaviors your feelings you know the way you interpret things and then feel about them so time is needed for that too you know that's exactly why I tell you that the thing is a process it doesn't happen from one day to the next even though you have these tremendous and powerful insights or revelations or epiphanies in and of themselves that's not enough they need time you need time to take these epiphanies and live life now with these new understandings of things so that you can see how it it brings you better results seeing a thing accurately brings you better results than seeing a thing in a distorted in a subtly distorted sometimes way it affects the entire way you interpret a thing you view a thing you approach a thing and the results that you get back doesn't it so you know I want to tell you that and kind of give you uh, I hope that you find that helpful in your process you know maybe you say well your life hasn't gotten all that much better for me and I've been listening to you for three years <laughs> well you know uh, it's an accumulation of insights but not only that it's also time time for these for you to to live life a bit with these things and make and continue making these adjustments because I don't have an outline today what I thought I'd do is kind of reminisce with you about my story maybe I'll be able to give you some details that you've not heard before but kind of go back in time at the from the beginning about when my recovery started and how it kind of went you know sort of the details of that as most of you know I had borderline personality disorder completely unaware for most of my life uh, up until about the age of 35 I was married to uh, my ex-wife Diana and we lived in Philadelphia Pennsylvania now I met her down in uh, Kentucky Ashland Kentucky she um, had con- gone down there from Philly to stay with a friend that she knew she was online buddies with an author you might have heard of her her name was Diana Gabaldon her well she, she's still living that's still her name Diana Gabaldon which was ironic because my wife's name was Diana now that I'm thinking about it I'm remembering that yeah she had gotten into contact online because she was part of this online group that were it was like a book club and uh, so there was a, a friend of Diana Gabaldon down there in that area or around Ashland Kentucky and they made a connection and so she was down visiting that friend and I was visiting my buddy Jeffrey that I mentioned earlier and that's how we met because we were all down in that same area at the same time so we started the long distance dating thing for a while but not for too long I'd fly to Philly at that time I lived in Columbus Ohio and she would fly to uh, Columbus and we did that for a while and then things started getting serious I was crazy about her first of all she seemed so far out of my league she was a refined big city girl uh, knew the world a lot better than I did I had not gotten out much you know I hadn't traveled much whereas she had friends in uh, England and had spent several of her summers in England 
In fact, after we got married, she and I traveled to England to visit those friends. Um, her family, economically or socially, was way better to do, way better off than my family ever was. She lived, her, she had grown up in this really nice neighborhood in Philadelphia. I don't want to give too many specifics there, but in the Philly area. And I remember the first time I went to see her, uh, I, I really felt out of place. Um, first of all, she lived in a condominium with her, a roommate of hers, and they owned the condominium, or she owned the condominium. Her friend would pay rent on it. And it was a, a nice condo. It was very nice and a very nice neighborhood. And I, I just felt way out of my league. It just felt like I was way out of my natural habitat. Uh, so I felt like kind of a fake being in that situation. It took me, well, not never, but it took me a while to get comfortable with the idea that I was in the situation that, you know, that she cared about me. Um, definitely, you know, a meeting a guy from the, the wrong side of the tracks type of story. At that age, I was 28. At 28, I hadn't accomplished anything in, in my life that that I could show anything for. Now, I had accomplished many things. You know, I, I was learning Spanish heavy at the time and was making great progress in that. Um, my career as a as a medical Spanish medical interpreter was really taken off there. I was I was working hard at things and I was making um, you know I was having my own accomplishments. But as far as anything to show for it, I didn't have anything to show for it. I didn't I didn't own any I didn't own a house. <laughs> um, I didn't even know how to go about doing that. You know finances for example. I didn't know anything about finances. I wasn't responsible with money. I would overdraft my bank account constantly. I mean constantly. By that time, I had already bought a new truck and had it repossessed. <laughs> that's, that's how immature and irresponsible I was with money. I just had no sense of it. And, you know, my parents, they just never taught us those things. A big surprise, right? The unhealthy parents who know nothing about about emotions and have no sense, no healthy sense of what emotions are or of what self is, you know, what the nature of being a person is, also did not have any sense of responsibility for teaching their kids about money. We never had an allowance, anything like that. All these things are flaws in parenting that I, I'm correcting with my own daughter. You know, I make sure that my daughter gets an allowance. I make sure that she learns about saving money, uh, how to spend money, how to always make sure that you've got a cushion, that you don't bite into that too much if you, if you can help it, and things like that. But you, you get the point. My, uh, my ex-wife Diana, she, she did not grow up like that. She grew up very responsible with money. With, by the time we met, my credit was just ruined. And uh, so she helped me fix my credit. And, you know, of course, at, when we met, she had a, a huge bank account. You know, by my standards, definitely. I mean, I couldn't keep $100 in my bank account. And here she had thousands and thousands of dollars. A couple of different bank accounts. She was very adept at moving money around, looking at budget 
our budget for the week and handling that. Now, because I had borderline personality disorder, and first of all, two things going on there, just no education. No, my parents did not provide me any education at all about money and spending and finances and those sorts of things. In fact, my parents will prefer usually to never buy a new car or anything like that. They, they, they always want to do it the hard way. <laughs> so if society has a system in place, and if by working harmoniously with that system, your life can be much easier, they don't do that. <laughs> they rebel against that. They say, no, I, I, I know the way. My, my way is better. And so what they'll do is they buy uh, used cars with cash and all the money up front and stuff like that. Diana really showed me that by working harmoniously with the systems that are in place, then you get the, the easiest results and you get better results. So, for example, you're not driving a 10-year-old car that you have to work on every weekend. Instead, you're driving a new car that you trade in every five years if you're financially responsible. So you see how by working harmoniously with the system that's in place, you're getting better results and they're smoother, they're easier results. You know, when you're driving a, a, a newer car, you know, I'm not saying it has to be brand new, but when you're driving a newer car, you're not just walking in and giving the people $40,000. Think about the burden that it is to not be able to buy something when you're living with the mentality that, well, first of all, I can't, I don't want to work harmoniously with the system, and I couldn't even if I wanted to, because every time that I've used the system, I've abused it, and now my access to that system is limited. You know, who's going to give me a $40,000 loan? So the only thing you're left with is, well, i got to save up money and get what I can. So you end up with something that, you know, is inferior, constantly needs working on, that you're really not 100% comfortable with, and you're still broke all the time. Whereas, if you can fix your credit, maintain your credit in a healthy condition, credit opportunities open up to you, you can then purchase a better car. You don't have to have $40,000 up front for it. So then you're not straining yourself and you're able to do other things with the money that uh, you still got coming in and the money that you're not um, spending all at once. So, you know, there are a lot of aspects of recovery that are like that. I've been meaning to, to do a financial episode for you guys where I go into more detail about that but the the underlying idea is the same when you work in harmony with a thing it goes more easily for you and you get better results think about when you fix your underlying misperceptions about feeling self and life how before all these negative difficult results that you were getting back are as a result of misunderstanding the things that you're dealing with so you're approaching them in the in a disharmonious way but how when you correct those underlying misperceptions then you begin to approach life in a way that's harmonious 
with life, the reality that you're really dealing with. And so life goes more easily, and the results you get back are just better. Anyway, that was something that Diana taught me. Uh, But when I moved up to Philly for her, uh, you know, I moved up before we were married and um, for religious reasons. I couldn't move in with her immediately, but basically I did. (laughs) But I, I lived with her parents for about six months until the wedding. But, you know, every day I was over, I was working, you know, as soon as I got up to Philly, I, I got a job as an interpreter. So I was working every day. But after work, you know, I'd go straight back to, to Diana's place, her condominium. And, um, you know, I wouldn't get in to her parents' house until very early in the morning. I'd just kind of sneak in and try not to wake anybody up. But, you know, that was very nice of them. And, and I liked it, actually. You're thinking back to it, I, I really liked that time with uh, Ray and Joanne, Diana's parents. Finally, we got married. And I have such good memories of that first year. Um, I have a memory of in this condo uh, neighborhood where we lived. Well, I got a couple of memories. Diana and I would, would go on these walks. And I'll tell you why. It's because Jordan and I, the, my friend that you've heard me talk about who died in that car accident, he and I would always take long walks. And the conversations that we had were just so fulfilling and so good for our friendship that that I wanted to repeat that with Diana. This was in 2004, I think, 2003 or 2004. So we were walking around our neighborhood one night, and this was uh, in the summertime, and we had walked way to the back part, and this was in Warminster, Pennsylvania. We'd walked way to the back part of this condo neighborhood, which was a high scale. It was kind of like a, a well, you mean, by my standards, it was a ritzy neighborhood. But I'd say probably people living in that neighborhood probably would not view it that way, but by my standards, it was. But we had walked back to the back here, and there was a wooded area, and I remember that <clears throat> that night, there were so many lightning bugs out. I'm not kidding. There must have been a million lightning bugs. But standing back here with just the silhouette of the trees as a backdrop and this enormous curtain of lights flashing on and off of these lightning bugs, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I just love that she and I shared that moment together. And I'm working on a song, actually. I've been working on it for a while. I want it to be just right, but it's called Field of Fireflies. And it's a a song about that moment that I shared with Diana. Standing in that field with those trees in the background as a a silhouetted backdrop and just this millions of lightning bugs flashing on and off with that dark black uh, backdrop behind, behind them. It was just amazing. It was really just such a sweet experience and such a sweet memory. Uh, Another one, uh, another memory I have of living in that condo with her 
is that I had gone, we had a dog named Farley. He was a border collie. Another aspect of having borderline personality disorder is, you know, you're never happy. Everything can be perfect in your life. You still feel like something's missing. And so you're on a constant search to fill whatever it is, that thing that's missing. And so I've told you, you'll see people do this with pets. They'll get a dog, the newness of that dog wears off, and they want another dog. Something inside of them is telling them, if I get another dog, maybe that'll make me happy. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't address the real problem, which is that a person is dissatisfied with himself or herself. Because I was living with borderline personality disorder, again, completely unaware, I had gone to the pet store and impulsively bought this little dog that we named Flynn. Oh, my, my wife, Diana, was so upset about that. And her mother was very upset about that. First of all, the dog cost like $1,000. But second of all, it, it was impulsive. I didn't talk to her about it first. You know, Typically, she would be the one that ended up taking care of the dogs the most. So it was really insensitive of me and selfish. But she grew to, to like the dog. And But as the dog would go out into our front yard... You know, our, our front yard wasn't very big, being a condo. Our dog would go out there and pee in the same spot. Both dogs would. And it killed that grass. So all of our neighbors had this beautiful, these beautiful lawns out front. And we had this big dead spot in our yard. And it was kind of embarrassing. So one night I said, I've got a solution for that. <laughs> you remember where we went back here and saw those lightning bugs? She says, yeah. I said, well, tonight we're going to take a walk. And so it got dark. It had to be dark. <laughs> but I remembered that there was this perfect grass back there in that field, perfectly manicured grass. <laughs> and so we let it get dark, and I took a shovel back there, and I cut a perfect square. <laughs> I cut a perfect square out of that grass, rolled it up, just like a carpet <laughs> and took that back to our house and then I measured out that square cut that square out of our yard and just set that that carpet of grass right down there so I mean basically went and stole stole somebody else's grass <laughs> but I always laugh about that thinking about the the landscapers you know the landscapers would come by every week thinking about them going back there to manicure that area of the of the condo neighborhood and seeing this perfectly square <laughs> portion of grass cut out of that out of that field anyway we didn't live there for very long i think we lived there for about a year and um i i did not like live well i love i loved our condo i mean like i said it was uh, it was highfalutin for me it was more luxurious and nice than anything I had ever been used to or that I felt I deserved. I, f I didn't feel like I... I felt like everything was better than me and kind of out of place like that. But I also didn't like that these condos, you know, there were several car uh, condos in one unit. Even though it was enormous, like a house, we had it like this whole house, 
they they were several units like several houses stuck together so we shared a couple walls with people i didn't like that because i didn't grow up that way you know i grew up in the woods we didn't have anybody around us i could go out the back door and pee and uh, didn't have to worry about anybody seeing me could scream at the top of my lungs didn't have to worry about it we could let our dogs run free didn't have to worry about it and now here i am in a situation where i'm sharing a wall with somebody and i didn't like that so we decided to buy a house and then we ended up moving to hatboro and i loved that neighborhood i loved it, it was like something out of an old classic tv show you know it was idyllic uh loved my neighbors just loved everything about it one thing i really liked about it is that it was a really crappy house but I saw potential in the house. Diana looked at the house. She just saw everything ugly about it. And I mean, it was a skunk. I could see that it was only a skunk because of the paint choices, um, cosmetic choices, and that uh, it could be a really nice project. And so it was kind of my chance to shine. You know, here I am feeling like I'm out of my element. I don't belong here because everybody's better than me everything is too refined it's much more refined than i'm that i deserve but i saw this house and i knew with my experience with carpentry and building in the past that i could renovate this house and so we bought the house it had this huge backyard for our dogs that was fenced in and just an idyllic neighborhood so i spent a summer i think it was the summer 2005 yeah the summer 2005 renovating this house and she and i did it together you know for some things we would get contractors but we did it together and i have such beautiful memories of that too it was a very romantic exciting time but that time was also soured a bit by the fact that uh, my my buddy jordan had been killed in a car accident just right around the same time that uh that we were buying that house and making that move so it was kind of a bittersweet time and emotionally you know i obviously i mean i was dealing with those feelings and i didn't know what to do with them i didn't feel like i could share them with anybody um not for real and uh i remember calling my dad by the way the night that jordan died or was killed you know in the, in the car accident i remember calling my dad up and my dad just being totally unable to empathize with me and here i was i mean it felt like it felt like my own brother had died and i was expressing my grief to my dad and getting nothing just getting nothing from him and finally i ended up feeling so stupid about that and i said well i I gotta go, but I never forgot that just his total lack of empathy. You know, he was not comfortable with my emotions in that moment. And my and at what other time would a person's emotions make more sense to you than in that moment when they've just found out that their best friend has been killed? You would think that even that that the the most emotionally unhealthy person in the world would at least be able to uh, understand feelings like that that I was experiencing and to experience empathy but not my father 
How do you think, you know, him being my emotional teacher, how do you think that affected me growing up, that my emotional teacher walked around with that attitude about feelings, that when his own child expresses feelings like that, that they make him uncomfortable, and he wants to downplay them as, as being kind of silly. Of course that affected me. It affected my entire attitude, my own entire attitude about pe- about feelings. How do you think that uh, that's, those sorts of attitudes affected my relationship with my wife when she would express feelings? See, I didn't view them as mattering unless they made sense to me. So I was dealing with uh, Jordan's death. A lot of changes happening in life. Some of them exciting. Many of them good. But at the same time, I was just, I had been, you know, for 35 years, I'd been storing and penting up my emotions, depriving myself of any true intimacy. I'm convinced that uh, Jordan's accident was kind of the breaking point for me because it was kind of like a dam that is already ready to burst. And you just come by and you just dump another lake into it. That's that's the situation I was dealing with. Even though it seemed like all these great things were happening in my life, they could not undo the years of damage and the pent up, the building up of all these things within me. And uh, so it was kind of when the the renovation of the house was complete, life calmed down. My job was perfect. My wife was perfect. My house was perfect. The truck I was driving was perfect. Everything was perfect. Now I have no distractions. I've gotten into a routine, right? Go to work every day, come home every day. Everything's comfortable, no distractions. That was when my crisis hit. And for those of you who have been listening to me for a while, you know that uh, I just, it, I'll tell you what, what it was like. It was like the person who's not happy with the dog once the dog gets, once they've spent enough time with the dog, the dog gets familiar enough to them. It's not new anymore. And so what do they do? Well, they start feeling unsettled, right? D- the dissatisfaction comes back that you got to find something to try to fill that void try to find happiness going to buy a new puppy that'll provide me that'll make me happy and it does for a few weeks it doesn't make you genuinely content but it, it, it does bring a measure of happiness but just like the dog that's what I did in my relationship with Diana when life was uh, settled and everything was good suddenly I had, did not have these distractions and uh, the old discontentment come back and so that was when I met Janelle at the hospital. She was an occupational therapist. And uh, from the first day I saw her, I was just, I can't describe it. My, uh, it, it was euphoric. Seeing her was euphoric for me. And I have this memory of, uh, I was so I was her interpreter. She was working with a patient. And the first day that I saw her, I mean, I, I just felt euphoric being around her. 
and she said hang on right here i need to go get something out of the cabinet and she turned and and she kind of hopped she had a little bounce to her walk as she walked off to the cabinet and i can still in my memory see her in that moment turning and walking and having that little bounce that little playful like cute bounce in her in her walk and kind of the way that her hair was moving and it was just every little detail i was just eating it up and uh so you know, one thing led to another and her and my relationship began that went on for a couple years i felt terrible about it didn't didn't understand why i felt terrible didn't understand why why i had this need and it weighed heavily on my conscience but my time with janelle was so wonderful and then on the other hand i truly cared about my wife it was a real predicament that i had put myself in you know unknowingly but i i was still the one to put myself in that predicament well that certainly didn't make life less stressful you know now i'm i'm juggling two different lives i'm spending half of my time with janelle the other half of the time with diana and diana's starting to get unhappy because she's not getting the best me right she's getting the the worn out me you know after i've spent let's say half a day with uh, janelle you folks with borderline personality disorder know how it goes when you're around people especially people that um, are not family or that you really really want to always leave a good impression with it's exhausting isn't it because you're constantly while you're around that person putting on the best show you can so what happens when you're not around that person you <laughs> you let your hair down don't you you need time to be away from anybody so that you can let your hair down so that you're not putting on appearances for for anybody and so i would spend all this time with janelle she'd get the best of me or you know the best representation of me and then i'd go back to my wife and i didn't want to be around her and it wasn't because of her it was because i needed i needed a, some time where I didn't have to put on a, a show for anybody. And so I would hide myself out in my own spaces. And, um, and you know, it was making Diana really unhappy. So this was all added stress. Now, I remember earlier I told you that I was already like a dam about to explode. Jordan died, was killed in the car accident. That was like dumping a, a whole lake into this dam that's already about to, to burst. And now I've complicated my life with these multiple relationships and juggling all these different things. <clears throat> it became too much. And uh, so that was when my crisis hit. And, uh, you know, eventually Janelle become pregnant. And ironically, this she didn't find out until after I finally broke it off with her. And I hated breaking it off with her. I hated it. I didn't want to do that. But I also didn't want to 
I, I also didn't want to leave Diana. I knew she didn't deserve that. And she had been the best wife, just the best wife to me. And I just couldn't do that to her. So when the decision time come, I broke it off with Janelle. And then I thought, well, I'll turn my attention completely to, to being a good husband to Diana. And that lasted about a week, maybe two weeks, before I got the phone call from Janelle that she was pregnant. And, uh, man, and just everything, everything exploded from there. So, I don't want this show to get too long. I think I'm going to leave you there. Most of you know some of the other details, but the important point is that all the pain from from those experiences in my life led to me eventually hitting rock bottom for real. And hitting rock bottom really is just a mechanism for us to tap into genuineness and approach. Do, do people have to hit rock bottom? No, we always have a choice. We can always choose to be genuine in our approach. It's just that most people won't because they're scared. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand the real issues they're dealing with. They don't believe that they can ever truly be different or truly be healthy. And so most people just simply don't. That's why hitting rock bottom becomes so necessary. It's a mechanism that allows us to finally tap into genuineness and approach, you know, sincerity and approach. So that's what happened to me. And uh, I ended up losing both girls. I ended up losing my house. ended up losing everything. And now these things are just, you know, kind of bittersweet memories that I walk around with. And they're always going to be bittersweet. I'm always going to have deep regrets. But in the context of those things had to happen in order for me to get healthy, (laughs) right? All the things I did, I did out of ignorance and because I was unhealthy. The consequences allowed me to get healthy. So you look at a situation like that and you say, well, was all that good or was it all, all of that bad? It wasn't good or bad. It was both good and bad, right? It had to happen, but a lot of the the different elements to it were less than admirable, but they still had to happen. The results of all those things were terribly painful, but at the same time, they were also terribly <laughs> beneficial. They helped me get better. And uh, so I know a lot of you folks, you can identify with the things I've talked about today. I just thought I'd share some, get a little personal with you, you know, make you uncomfortable. Get, share, throw some intimacy on you and, uh, and show you how it's done. So I didn't yet get to tell you about thelastsymptom.com. That's my website full of free resources that I would love for you to take advantage of. Also, I hope to see you over there at Locals at the Last Symptom community. And uh, at, on MeWe, um, the MeWe group is growing. I'm very happy about that, and the locals group as well. I mean, I, be, be part of both communities. Why not? Finally, the paid resources over at thelastsymptom.com. You can schedule one-on-one phone conversations with me, one-on-one Zoom video conferences with me, and most 
the thing I'm most excited about is the last symptom fundamentals course. It's an intensive two-week video pre-recorded class. It's a course. And just as we were talking earlier about how DBT is superficial in its approach, the last symptom fundamentals course is not superficial at all. It gets to the root causes of these things, explains how they got there, why they're there, what you can do about them. And um, so it's truly something that can change your life. It's a I just packed so many insights that I got from my own recovery into that course that can really help you if you have the right attitude when you go through the course. Folks, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Do something nice for yourself, as always. Thanks for listening. Um, And like I said, I'm going to keep retooling my schedule and hopefully start getting these shows out on Thursday where they belong. Mm -hmm.